has become an all-too-familiar scene in our family. Mona was and Skyler were on their way to UT Hospital for a, another blood test. And so Mona and Skyler were in, going to Building B at UT Medical Center, and they got on the elevator to go up to the floor to check out the, their, to, for Skyler to get some blood taken. So they're in the elevator in the back, and right before the door is shut, an elderly man on a walker and his wife come into the elevator. They come in as they turn. Skylar sees that he's wearing a U.S. Navy hat and a U.S. Navy mask. And Skylar um, goes first gasps when he sees him. And then he goes up and starts to touch his face, to look at his mask. And, and he's saying, oh, wow, oh, oh. And, and Mona quickly says, Skylar, that's not appropriate. We're not, you're not supposed to touch other people. And they, they, were, they were kind and said, no, it's okay, it's okay. And then listen to this. Skylar looked at him and said, you must be a hero. And then the guy sheepishly with his walker shook his head, no, no. But his wife leaned over and said, yes, he really is a hero. And then Skylar stepped back, looked him in the eye, and what he'd seen on television before, he saluted him. And then this man, this old man, straightened up, took his hand off his walker, and saluted Skylar back. And tears filled his eyes. And his wife looked at Mona and said, the elevator door opened, and they went to their room. Skylar and Mona went to theirs. Why do I tell you that story? It's a story of a man who'd forgotten who he was. And for just a moment, in an elevator at UT Hospital, somebody recognized who he was and reminded him that he was a hero. And it's when he sensed that, it changed him just a little bit because he was reminded, here's who I am. Seth's been doing such a good job going through the book of Ephesians with you, and we find ourselves in this book that Paul is writing from prison. And he's telling the story at the beginning of this grand truth of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done. And then he shifts halfway through to talk about how we should behave how we should live since Christ is who he is. But in all the time as he's telling us how to behave, he's also reminding us who we are. And in this passage, Paul says something, and we'll get to it in a few minutes, but it's pretty amazing. Paul doesn't just say you reflect light. Paul doesn't just say you ought to be more light-like. Paul says you are light speaking to the people in the church in Ephesus. And I think there's something for us to learn from these words written so long ago to a church, quite frankly, that was struggling with some of the same things our culture struggles with. And so, before we talk about God, and before we look at his word, let's go to him and let's pray together. Father, 
we're here this morning because of who you are and what you've done. We, we want to we wanna know that we can be changed. We want to know that it's true. We want to see ourselves not from our own shame and our brokenness, but from your, from your grace and holiness. So this morning, Father, would you meet us here as we look at your word? And Father, you know everyone who's here. You brought us here. You're a sovereign God, and no one's here by accident. You know the couple that fought on their way here. You know the people struggling with doubt. You know the people struggling with addictions of every kind. You know all of us. And so would you meet us here? And would your spirit blow through here like a mighty wind? And would you change us? We do need transformation. Father, for the people that are too comfortable, would you use our time together to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? For all of us, would you use this time to equip us for your purposes and for your glory? We pray all this in the powerful, powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The passage we're going to look at this morning is found in Ephesians 5. Now, Last week, Seth took the first two verses of chapter 5, and I'm going to, just to get context, read those two verses, and then we're going to look at the text for today. Because those verses give you the reason that Paul talks so strongly next. And Paul has some very strong words about to come to us. And so it's very helpful to know, know why, he was a, why he took such a turn to say such important things for us to pay attention to this morning. Now, before we look at that, I just want to remind you that the church in Ephesus, so often people say things like, oh, the Bible's not relevant to me anymore. It was written so long ago. God has such a way of revealing himself in a way that it transcends generations. And the church in Ephesus was struggling with a culture that had become sexually obsessed. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And because it was an economic um, center hub in that area, it had become a very materialistic and a very uh, a place where a lot of prosperity. And so Paul is speaking into a culture that has become lost in those areas. And I think that is helpful for you and I to know because that seems to be a lot like our culture as well. And so let's look at his word together. Reading from the ESV this morning. If you could, if you can, please stand as we read God's Word together. I'm going to read, from, uh, I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 5, and then we'll look at the text for today. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in the love of Christ as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And now our new text for today. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it's not proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and is right and is true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, arise, O sleeper. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You can be seated. So Seth so taught so well last week the idea, the invitation at the beginning of this chapter is that to be an imitator of Christ. It makes a lot of sense. What you imitate, you will become like. What your heroes are, you start to become like. And it's really important that you think about and, and you spend some time thinking about what it means to imitate Christ. Now, usually we think about what is it like if you imitate Christ, the dignity of that. Well, obviously, you would live in love and you would show grace. But there's also the what are you not going to be like if you imitate Christ? We know what you'll be like if you imitate Christ. You'll be loving. You'll be gracious, you'll, you'll walk as children of the light, but what will you not be like? What will be missing if, as you grow and as you imitate in Christ? And that's where Paul makes this turn and says some very hard things about how we will look if we are imitators of Christ. And so, the first thing I'd want you to notice is the specificity of the specificity of Paul as he speaks about the sin of the church in Ephesus. A lot of times we speak in generalities. But you worship, you change, you repent, you grow, and you heal in specificity, not in generality. And so Paul is very specific with the church in Ephesus about things they would be particularly struggling with. Well, as you know... Um, one of the things that took place in Ephesus was the worship of the Greek goddess Diana, or Artemis. And if you follow the Marvel movies at all, this might go under foolish talk, by the way, I'm not sure. If you follow the Marvel movies or not, you know that Wonder Woman, now, most of you in this room at this point, I will lose you with this reference, and I understand that, but for those of, those of us who have kids that follow these sort of things, you'll, you'll be with me. But in the movie, Wonder Woman, it begins with them on an island with all women that are these beautiful Amazon women that are fighting one another for, because they're strength. There's no men anywhere because it's a women-dominated culture that is, that is about strength and sexuality. And that's where Wonder Woman comes from to come into our world and beat up people. Um, it's a hard story, and they say it's hard to believe Christianity. I'm just saying. <laughs> I 
and we're lining up to watch these movies, but I'm just saying, that's kind of, but now you've got to understand, you can go to the ruins in Ephesus right now, and you can see the ruins of a temple to her. And, and, and part of the worship to, of her included, um, included prostitution and sexuality and illicit sexuality and a sexuality that was about self and about uh, gratification, a sexuality that was about taking from others, a satisfaction that was a sexuality that was very selfish oriented. And, and then people became Christians and they came, became Christians in a culture that taught them about sexuality being a, a selfish, pleasure oriented Thing that can't be controlled that was um, that was just for self and those aren't that's not a biblical understanding of sexuality okay? God designed human sexuality for the flourishing of humans and for the and because it reflects something about the very covenant nature of who God is and it and it's supposed to be a very spiritual thing and, and it's supposed to be something God very much endorses in its appropriate place and so Paul is speaking to this culture that has been taught poorly about sexuality. And he's saying, wait a minute, there can't be sexual immorality. Sex is not supposed to be an, an idol that becomes something that you live for. You destroy something when you make it everything or you make it nothing. And we've done that with sexuality in our culture. And so Paul is speaking with specificity about that. He's then also speaking about specificity, about covetousness or about greed. And because an economic society like Ephesus had a lot of stuff. And I just want to tell you, I've decided the more you have, the more greedy you tend to be. I'll give you an example. As, as some of you may remember, uh, when Mona's brother passed away a few months ago, we were given this bucket of comic books. Um, I mean, like 2,000 comic books. And I wanted to just go to the dump and dump them out and just say, you know, these, they aren't worth anything. I mean, who cares? They're comic books. Um, and, and if somebody had not stopped me, that's probably what we would have done. And at that point, when the widow said, would you take these? I don't know what to do with them. I thought maybe they were worth 100 bucks. I thought maybe we could go to a comic book store and, and say, hey, do you want to give these for $100? And they take them. And, and then I, and at that point, I would have been real generous. I think I would have said, well, I think the widow should get all $100. I mean, all we did was just go by here. Well, we found out that these are not worth millions or anything, but they're worth thousands. And now all of a sudden, it's like, why should she get some money? I mean, I deserve all that money. I mean, or Mona and I do. I mean, we're the ones that are going through the, the list. It's like, how did I get more greedy when I got more? Oh, that's the way the human heart works if Christ isn't intervening. And so Paul is speaking very specifically about these sins. Now, Paul could have written about all sorts of other sins as well. But because this, the specificity of Ephesus, these were the places that he needed to say, you're not going to, if you're going to be an imitator of Christ, you're going to reflect his love, but you're not going to have these things growing in your life the way this culture has them growing in their lives. You're not going to have this sexual immorality growing in your life. You're not going to have greed growing in your life if you're imitators of Christ. So first I want you to notice the specificity that God takes with sin. I also want you to notice what I don't think, it's really important that you 
hear what I, what I don't think God is saying in this passage. Sometimes I've heard people preach this passage and say, that means if any of this is in your life at any time, you're not really a Christian. And then what happens is everybody starts pretending this isn't in their lives, and, and there's something that becomes very fake about it, and it's really kind of sad because I don't think Jesus died on the cross so we could pretend. You always interpret, the, the Bible interprets the Bible. And so I don't believe, because it's not, it wouldn't be consistent with the rest of the Bible, this is not saying that if you struggle with these things but are repentant, that you're not really a Christian. Because the Bible is full of talking about struggling and suffering in the process of growing in Christ. So I don't believe this passage is teaching somehow that if any of this is a problem in your life or you struggle in this, and the truth is all of us do, in these or with some other sins, that that somehow means you're disqualified. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching that if, you're an, if you are in Christ, if he is in you, if you are light because of him, you will be growing this direction as you imitate him toward light, not toward dark, and this is what dark looks like. Dark is sexual immorality, sexual uh, and, uh, and impurity and greed. And so there's a, understand that there's a, there's a movement between dark and light here. Now we'll talk in a minute about the difference between he declares that we are light, and then he also talks about kind of a movement between dark and light. And we'll talk about what, 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 that, what that means theologically in just a minute. But the first thing I wanted you to note is notice the specificity that God speaks about sin. Second thing I want you to be aware of is how seriously God takes sin. Sometimes, because of God's grace, and he is gracious, and because he's forgiven you, and if you know him, he has forgiven you. Sometimes because of that, we kind of feel like <coughs> it must not be a big deal. Sin must not be a big deal. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that sin is a big deal to God and his grace is even bigger yet. And sometimes what we do is we kind of say, oh, because we're forgiven, it wasn't a big deal. No, Jesus paid, for, paid with his blood for our sin. It's a big deal. You don't deal with your struggles by minimizing them. Jesus did not deal with our sin by minimizing it. He dealt with our sin by taking it very seriously. And so this passage, if nothing else, this, this passage would teach you that God takes sin very seriously. He takes it very seriously. And just because he has grace, and just because you have forgiveness, and just because as a child of God you are light, it doesn't mean that he doesn't take very seriously our, our idolatry are putting stuff in his place. He also knows what it means if we begin to do that in our lives. You know, if you think about this whole area of sexuality, I can't help but remember the C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. By the way, a great book to read if you haven't read it in a long time. You can get it up on an audio book and listen to it. It was actually radio lectures, and it works very well. There's just something you listen to. But he talks about cultures and, and how our culture has gone crazy about sexuality. And he said, can you imagine a culture where people gathered together in a dark room and they opened up the curtain? And as they opened up the curtain, there was a plate of food. No, I'm kind of thinking of the food network, but that's beside the point. And so 
maybe he was prophetic when he used this example. And he said, and then people, as, as someone would cut the steak, would cheer and yell and go, ooh, ooh, and they'd get all excited and, and thrilled, and the whole place would be, they'd, they'd be going excitement about, look at the food, look at the food. And people were cheering and pushing each other away to see the food. You'd go, oh, that's a crazy society. Either that or it's Cracker Barrel at 1 o'clock this afternoon. I'm not sure. But, but you would say, that's a crazy society. And then you would come to the conclusion, they must be a society that's starving. Because they so worship food, they must be starving. And then he makes the application about sexuality in our culture. And he says, the way that we look at sexuality as a, as a self-oriented way to see the world, it says something about who we are without Christ, that we are starving, not for sexuality, but for intimacy and for connection and for real, real connection with another. That there's a loneliness out there. I mean, by the way, let's just be honest. The sexual revolution that started in the 70s and 80s, still plugging along, How's that working? Well, by every measure you can think of, um, divorce rates are high, satisfaction rates are low, addiction rates are high, um, pornography rates are through the roof, Pe- faithfulness is, is, is kind of mocked, virginity is mocked in, in our culture. I mean, there's so much, the, the world's view of sexuality hasn't worked so well. It really hasn't. And it's so funny, most people a little bit younger would go, I mean, a little bit younger than me, which would be almost everyone, (laughs) you know, kind of go, well, you know, the world has a better idea about sexuality than us, but we ought to, because we love God, we'll we'll try to do what God wants. No, that's not the truth. God designed sexuality for human flourishing and for to, to make a connection so people would connect in, in, in the way that God wanted them to connect in marriage and in love and in commitment. And, and the absurdity of what it's become hasn't worked. And it didn't work in Ephesus in the day. It doesn't work today in the U.S. And so um, understand that the, what a part of the reason that Paul is speaking about this is that because this a broken system a, bo- a broken system of idolatry ultimately will give you all that it can but it'll never give you enough and, and and what it does give you will never fully satisfy you here we're in heaven as well so that's why he first note the specificity that he's talking about sin second notice the that god takes sin seriously Third, what I want you to notice from this text, and there's so much, you could come up with 10 points from this text. I'm going to come up with six. And, and so when you read over it this week, you feel free to continue to, to read and study because there's so much in this text. But next, I want you to notice what God contrasts this sinful behavior with, this idolatry with. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll hear preaching and sometimes I'll hear teaching. Sometimes I'll read the Bible and I'll go, I already knew that. I knew that I shouldn't do that. I know that I shouldn't lie. I know that I shouldn't be greedy. But the problem is, I don't need to know more. I need to figure out why I don't do what I know. 
And sometimes I'll hear, the, hear people say, well, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this. And I go, yeah, I shouldn't do that. But God doesn't just say, don't do it. He gives you a replacement for it. And if you look in this text, you have an antidote for sexual immorality, really an antidote for idolatry. What is that antidote? Well, let's look at the text together. It says this. We're going to look at that text later. Um, <laughs> well, well, let's look at this text together. It says, um, uh, just one second, and I'll find it back here. It says this. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, so what is he contrasting? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's impossible to live with humility and gratitude before God and be an idolater. Thanksgiving, being a sense of gratitude, being a sense of appreciation. So much of the Old Testament and even the New Testament talks about remembering. Remember God's goodness. Remember what God's done. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember, because it's easy to forget. And it's easy to begin to think about what you don't get. And, and it's easy to begin to, to, to believe that. And so God would say, let me help you. Let me help you what to replace your selfish idolatry with. Let me, help, let me give you what to put in that empty spot. If you say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, what are you going to do instead? Well, create in you, a, allow God to create in you a sense of gratitude, of thanksgiving. Because thankfulness does not exist with idolatry. So, not only notice the specificity that God speaks about sin, notice the way that God takes sin seriously. Notice that God replaces sin with thanksgiving. Next, notice from this text your identity given to you in Christ. God says through Paul to this church, you are light. Now, he doesn't just say you reflect light. He doesn't say you're like light. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus is light, but if you, he says, you are light. Now, that comes from Paul's love for the idea that, <coughs> excuse me, it's the microphone. That comes from God's, from Paul's delight in that, in that theological truth that we are in Christ. I mean, he, he talks about that often. He loves that idea. He loves that, theolog that theological truth that, we, that Christ is in us, that God dwells in us. He loves that. And so in this text, he says, he's talking about that, the very essence of the fact that, that because of Christ, because Christ is light. Remember, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the light in, in life. And he says that he is, remember all through the Bible, there's light and dark. Sin is dark. God and his ways are light. And so, so Paul doesn't just say you reflect light. He says, you are light. That's talking about your identity. How you see yourself will determine how you, what you get your identity. How you see yourself will determine how you live. And so he's saying, listen, church in Ephesus, it struggles with a culture that's gone crazy. If you're going to imitate Christ, you're going to walk away from these things that the world is saying. They're wrong about sexuality. They're wrong about money and greed. Those things can't possibly satisfy you. You don't really believe material things can meet spiritual needs, do you? No, they can't. 
Live instead with thanksgiving. Oh, and know that you are liked. There's a theological concept called the already but not yet, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying that theologically, it is true because of the word of Christ, I am declared righteous. Theologians might call that imputed righteousness. I'm given the righteousness of Christ as his son or daughter, that, that God sees the work of Christ in my life, and that's imputed righteousness. And so I am righteous. See, already. The not yet part of who we are in Christ on this side of heaven is that we're still struggling with our sinfulness as well. And so there's the already, you're declared righteous, and an ongoing. It's just like when you get married. The two shall become one. Are they one? Well, yes, because God declared them one. Are they one? No, they'll spend the whole rest of their life figuring out oneness. And that's that already, but not yet. And so the same thing happens here. You are light. And there's a process where you're moving between light and dark. But you've got to know, you've got to start with the idea that you are light. He declares you light. You may, you may think you don't have much purpose in life. You might have the worst job in the world. But if you know Jesus Christ and you're light, <laughs> you can be light in that horrible job. You, you may be in a difficult family situation, but because Christ calls you light, you can be light in a dark situation. You might live, be living, and we are, in a culture that has really gone mad. But because who you are declared by the work of Christ, you are light in this dark place. You are light in your family. You are light in this church. You are light in this culture. You are light at your school. And Paul wants the people in Ephesus to know that just because they live in a dark and difficult season time in a culture that's gone mad, that the light of Christ is not quenched. And it lives in his children, and it lives in his church, and it is light. I mean, wow. See, that's why in the New Testament, Paul can talk about how a slave, I mean, because slaves, it's not that, Paul was for slavery. He wasn't. There was just slavery in the culture, and slaves were becoming Christians. And so he was saying, wait a minute. Your circumstances don't take away the truth of your identity in Christ. Your circumstances, no matter what your job is, no matter where your place is, no matter your culture is, no matter where you stand, if you know Christ, you are light, even in the darkest of places. Wow. Why would God trust us like that? that's what he calls us. He doesn't just say you're like light. He doesn't just say be more light, like be a bulb. He says you, because of the work of Christ, are light. Wow. So not only know the specificity of sin that he speaks of, therefore he wants to deal with us with specificity as well. Notice that God takes sin seriously. Notice that God replaces sin with thanksgiving and notice your identity, that God sees you as 
transforming everything around you because you are light. Remember, that light comes because he's in you. Next, this is your second directive from this. You know, the first one was in terms of what to replace sin with in your life. The first one was with thanksgiving. The second one is this, with curiosity for what pleases God. Look at this, uh, verse 10. He just said, walk as children of light. He's just told us that you're light. He says, so the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And then look, listen to verse 10. <coughs> I've been smoking all morning and that's, I'm just kidding. That's not true. That would be a coarse joke that I should not have had because the text, the text says that I shouldn't have had that joke. Back to what's important. Verse 10 says this, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the first thing God says to replace your sin strategies with is replace it with thanksgiving. And the second thing he's saying to replace your coarse talk with the unimportant things that we spend our time in, he's saying, think about what would be pleasing to the Lord. What would God want in this situation? See, I think when we get to heaven, I think we'll be surprised by how much time we spent on things that really didn't matter much. Your biggest fear should not be that you'll fail, because we'll all fail at something. Your biggest fear should be that you succeed at something that doesn't matter. Because I think we all spend most of our lives chasing things that don't matter. And so Paul's saying, I mean, it's okay. I mean, we've got to go to work. We've got to do our jobs. But wherever God's placed you is where he's placed you. But don't waste your time. And that's this whole idea of the foolish talk and the joy. Make sure that what you're doing Make sure that you know your light in a dark place and that you realize the importance of that. What would it be like if I thought of my school situation, my family situation, the biggest conflict I'm having with somebody right now, and I thought, what does God desire right now in me? What is God's desire? So I also want you to note, as we look at this, this text, that you would become, that God wants you to be curious about what pleases him, what pleases God. That should be the question we ask as our day goes on. God, I'm in a horrible situation right now. What would please you in this? God, I, I don't understand this. What would please you? What would be pleasing to you? See, I want to figure out how to get the sin stuff out of my life, and he's giving us direction on that. It's not just trying harder, it's understanding your identities in Christ and then replacing the sin thinking with thanksgiving and then replacing, replacing a dry throat with a, with a non-dry throat. I was, I was going to set this on the piano, but I realized it was Gabe who handed this to me and if I put a glass of water on his grand piano, it could be, this could be the shortest end of a sermon you've ever heard. So, but thank you, Gabe. Um, so the, the idea is to become curious about what God desires. What does God desire in this? You know what I've become an expert on? What I desire. 
I'm an expert on what I desire in almost any situation. I know what my favorite food is. I want to know what my favorite, I, I know what I want. And I'm an expert on my wants. And God would say, oh, you want to live a different life? You want to live a life less futile? You want to live a life that matters and echoes into eternity? Realize you live in, you are light. And become curious about what God desires in this situation. Wow, how differently I'd live. If just half the time I spent thinking about what I wanted, I thought about what God might want in this situation. What would bring God glory in this situation? What would bring God, bring God glory in this conflict? What would bring God glory in... I, do I ever ask those questions? I'm usually saying, why didn't I get what I want? So God, Paul is telling the people in Ephesus, not only do you, I specifically want to deal with your sin life, the specific things you're dealing with, not only does he want to say, your sin, um, I take sin seriously, he wants to remind you, and he, and he wants to say, I'm going to separate your sin by making you live, move toward thanksgiving. He then wants to remind you of your identity in Christ, and then he wants to say, become an expert, become curious on what pleases God, what pleases him. Well, God has invited us to live a different life. Know the contrast between darkness and light. In darkness, there is shame and secrets, addictions and brokenness. Satan loves darkness. In light, there's hope curiosity, there's faith, there's love. And the contrast is amazing, not just to the church in Ephesus. So remember, he declares you light, that's the already, but he's also saying there's an ongoing battle between light and dark, between light and dark. Now remember this principle in life, you're not standing still. Every day, you're either moving a little closer to light or a little closer to darkness. Every day. Because it's not by the big things that make that. It's the little things you do every day that are moving you toward light or toward dark. Now remember, you're already declared light by the work of Christ in you. But now, live out the light and move away from the dark in your life. And you will, do, you will be moving one direction or another. The, the truth of a human being is we don't stand still spiritually ever. There is movement and momentum taking place in our spiritual life all the time. And the most spiritual person you know can be moving toward darkness. And the most struggling person you know could be stumbling toward light because that's possible that momentum is moving all the time. And so understand the principle of momentum and movement from darkness to light. Well, real quick, I just want to give you a couple of so what's. I really do believe this passage requires movement. I, I, when there, there are some passages that require reflection. There's some passages in the Bible that require you to just spend time thinking, okay, what do I need to think about differently? And there's some passages that kind of get you, want you to, you know, what should I 
How should I feel differently? But I think this passage would make you say, what should I do differently? So I don't think I'd be fair to this text without giving some very specific, what might you do this week if we took seriously the Word of God, if we were doers of the words and not just hearers of the words this, this morning? So I'm just going to give you four ideas. Four ideas to kind of take with you this week to be a doer of this text and not just a hearer alone. Because I think this text requires some movement and not just thought. First, I would ask you to take this week and just take three or four minutes every morning. And if you are already disciplined in prayer and Bible study in the morning, great. Just add three minutes more to it and do this. I want you to do a week of gratitude. Begin the morning with a, with a gratitude journal. What are you thankful for? What are you, what are you appreciative of? What are you thankful for? Well, I don't have anything to be thankful for. I got nothing. Yeah, you were given life today. You were given breath to breathe. You, what can you be thankful for today? So the first thing I would do on just a practical sense is for this week, I would invite you to do a gratitude journal every morning. Just take a few minutes, three minutes, and write down, Dear Lord, the following things I will be thankful for today, and I am thankful for these things. Let them replace my idolatry and self. And just write them out. What are you thankful for? That would be the first task I would ask you to do. Second thing I'd like you to do this week is I want you to write down sometime today one conflict that you're having with either a person at work, a person in your family, um, or a situation. Some conflict that's taking place in your life. Some real conflict, not some theoretical conflict like, I'm really disappointed with the government. You know, you know you're not going to do anything about that this week. What's a real conflict you're having with a real person in your life this week? Or a real situation at work? And I want you to, to first identify that and then ask this question. What would please God in this? What is God's desire in this situation? Remember, one of the antidotes to evil is becoming curious about what God desires. So the second application of this, have a journal of gratitude, one, two, Take one conflict in your life this week and ask the question, what would God desire in this? How would God want glory from this situation? Third, I want you to pray and meditate about what it means for you to be light wherever you are. What most of us do is we spend all our time talking about how dark everything is. I'm telling you what, our culture's gone crazy. I tell you what, politics. You know, you're not going to fix any of that. So instead of focusing on the dark this week, focus on the light. You are light. So what's it like that God placed you wherever you are in whatever situation you're in, and what would it mean for you to be light in that situation? And so just write that out. Because God's put you in a place for light. And last, I'd like you to identify at least two areas of your life where you feel that brings you shame. It might be the way you keep your office desk. I probably shouldn't have told you that one. It might be how you look 
It might be your money. It might be a secret sin you have. It might be pornography that you look at. It might be anger that you hold on to. It might be resentment. It might be, I don't know what it is for you, but what's, what would bring shame if it were brought out to, right now in the open? And I'll bet you, if you're like me, there's, that, that could be a long list. So I'm just asking you to stop at two because you only have a week. If the gospel's true, and it is, then shame should not be a part of our walk. And so pick two areas that you feel shame about. And I challenge you first to talk to God about that. And then to talk to one other person you can trust about that. And what you would be doing is you'd be taking something that's in the dark and you'd be putting it into the light. And in that, I think you'll find hope. I think you'll find healing. And I think you'll see light. So men and women, it's an interesting text we have this morning. It's a text that requires movement on our part. It's a a text that requires us to understand that God takes our lives seriously on this side of heaven. And if you know him, and I hope you do, if you don't, please talk to one of the elders after church today. Because there is no hope if you don't know him. You're just left in darkness. You don't even know it's dark. But would you this week be reminded of that God wants to deal with you specifically in your personal life, in your personal struggles, that he takes your sins and struggles and sorrows and suffering seriously, that he invites you to live in thanksgiving. He wants to change your identity and understand that you are light. He wants you to be curious about what matters to him, not just what matters to you. And he wants you to move toward light and away from darkness. May God use these words of his in our lives and may this be a message not of condemnation because that's not part of the gospel but it would be instead a message of hope because we're not afraid to deal with what is true because we are light because of the work of Christ.